I'm J.R. Butler, co-founder and CEO of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes and military veterans into becoming a professional salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? Today on the show, we've got Matt Parrish. Matt, thanks for being on the show. JR, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. It's good to be here. I'm pumped, man. Our 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 show is is you know merchants of change is really we we kind of target um, you know new sellers and and people that are kind of considering that career shift into sales. And our mission at Shift Group, as you know, is to help elite athletes and military veterans become elite sales professionals. And our our podcast guests are usually former athletes and veterans who found success in sales. And and from a structure perspective, we kind of like to start at the beginning with with the military career, and then we hit your transition into civilian life, and then we just kind of finish with some lessons you've learned in business and, and sales. Sound like a good plan? Absolutely. Looking forward awesome. to it. Awesome. So you had a long career in the Army. Um, I'd love to know, like, what are some of the key milestones or experience that have that have really shaped, you know, who you are today, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, over 20 years in the Army, all of it within Special Forces. Uh, you know, first kind of big milestone is the after the first two years of going through our qualification course, you, you know, get your Green Beret, you get your Special Forces tab, right? So you've been, you know, for a guy like me who came straight off the street, um, you know, that's all you're thinking about for that two years, right? And then it's like, it's like you made the team uh, and, and you feel accomplished up until the point that you walk into your first team room and realize you're, you know, you, you've done two years just to be the new guy who needs to sweep and take out the trash. And like everyone else in there has already done that, plus done a lot of other things. Right. And so it's a huge milestone. It's exciting. Uh, and, and it's great. Uh, I was able to then go to ranger school right after that, which is another uh, about two and a little over two month course, uh, which is another kind of leadership. Uh, so that's that's sort of a milestone. That's another kind of brotherhood that you join. And then right after that, because of the global war on terrorism, I spent the next four years going back to back to back, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iraq. And on the times when I was home, I was going to other schools, right? So advanced schools. Um, so it was really like a pedal to the metal, crazy, uh, ride there for the first part of my career. And I, I, I say that as if it slowed down, it, it didn't really, but, uh, those were some of the milestones. And then, you know, as you, as you move up in leadership, I, I guess another, before I get there, another milestone is I kind of went through an advanced, uh, close quarter battle, advanced, like room clearing school that gave me access to another, um, kind of set apart unit that allowed me to be more focused on the kind of stuff you see in movies of going in and kicking down doors and all those things. And so that was a big move to kind of change and be more focused on that. And uh, so I did that. And then as I moved up in leadership, you start actually being able to take over one of those 12 person teams. Right. And that's kind of the pinnacle for us. Um, you know, you become a team sergeant, you're in charge of a 12 person team. And then I moved up in rank a few more times and, uh, and, you know, ultimately ended up as a SAR major. And my last position before I retired was running our global human performance effort uh, for Special Operations Command. So across the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, um, all of our, everything from physical therapists to psychs to cognitive performance specialists, spiritual uh, folks to social and family programs, basically everything that we did 
to invest on top of what the Army and Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps give people for our special operators because of the because of the grind, uh, we are committed to trying to make sure that we take care of them holistically from all different uh, shapes and sizes and, and different angles. So uh, it was really awesome. And it was an honor of my life, uh, you know, as we'll get on, as we'll get into some of the stories and those things, uh, you know, I, I'll just say uh, being in special operations, it is the honor of my life to just have been surrounded by people that were better than me, smarter than me, faster than me, stronger than me, and just try to keep up and figure out like, how can I uh, you know, just try to stay up by their side uh, throughout this career. So it's it's been it was incredible. It's something that uh, certainly shaped everything uh, in my life, a hundred percent. It's it's quite the experience, and you know, we we were talking a little bit before we hit record about you know some of the unique kind of cultural aspects of of special operations, specifically like one thing that I, I is very clear to me is like this team this team culture right and and i think you know we always ask athletes what do you miss most about you know sports and and almost 99% of the time it's my teammates and and i know from the guys i've gotten to meet that have similar backgrounds to you uh they all talk about that that team culture and and i'd love to ask you like when you look back at some of your favorite teammates in the green berets what what are like the common traits and characteristics that that those those top guys all share yeah it's a great question uh you know i i ask a similar one on my podcast because it's something like i think looking at good teammates is one of the number one things that we can try to emulate that that spans across all different backgrounds and all different kind of professions and uh you know you're 100 percent right as far as like when you look back at that uh, i miss the team the guys that i was able to be surrounded by 100 percent uh you know when i look at the best teammates i have i think a lot of people your initial reaction is to go to some of these like different traits about how they operated. One thing that I just, I always want to say that shouldn't get lost is when you're listening to these podcasts, you start talking about all these different attributes. The number one is being really, really good at their job, right? And sometimes <laughs> that that's so foundational and bedrock that sometimes we don't say that. And we start talking about kind of the cherries on top and the, and the whipped cream on the Sunday, so to speak, but being really technically and tactically proficient. And, 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 you know, that's, there's a reason that the captain, you know, the guy's wearing the C is really good too, right? Like he's not, he's not just Rudy on the bench. Who's cheering everybody on. He's leading from the front. And that's the same thing as I look about the, like the, the best teammates is they were very, very good at their job. So they were so good at it that now they had, they had bandwidth to be able to look left and right and try to help others or to, or to think a little bit more strategically or to understand why we were doing something. And I think a lot of times, you know, in this current, you know, as you're, as you're a young guy and you're looking up and you're listening to things like this, you start listening to all the, the ancillary things first and foremost, be very, very good at your job, right? Be very, um, you know, for us, both sides, both athletes and, and military be in great physical condition because you're, you're not, you're not using as big a percentage of your reserve to do the day to day. So you have more left over cognitively and physically to be able to help others, to be able to, uh, you know, to see things. If you're, if you're smoked <laughs> and you're, you're barely hanging on. You're not going to be able to kind of take those blinders off and look and see the bigger picture. And that's what the best teammates do, right? They're so good at all of the things that they're supposed to do that now they have bandwidth physically and cognitively to pick you up, to see the little intricacy detail um, that that you would miss if you weren't. 
that good at it, right? It's such a good point too. And and I think it's really it's really good from like the context of what we do, right? Because we mm-hmm. we help athletes and veterans transition to a new career and and we talk to a lot of folks that have a really great track record from their past life as mm-hmm. a captain of a team or as a leader in the in the military. But like to your point, you know, they they want to accelerate that path to leadership quickly. And to your point, like, I think the takeaway I got there is first, you need to get technically and tactically good at what you're going to lead your team to do. So 100%, you, can't, yeah. you can't skip steps. You know what I mean? Um, and, and I also think that those types of people, the reason that they're so good technically and tactically is because they've developed a really good practice around developing the right habits, repetition, and like, you know, becoming excellent at certain processes and, and that, and that work ethic and ability to, to show up every day consistently is why they're so good. So, so just in that sense alone, they're being a leader, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and you don't have to be in a leadership position to be a leader at all, right? Like every single person it has a sphere of influence. And if you are doing things positively, you're pushing those around you to also try to attain that standard. And if you're backing off, you're doing the same thing for that sphere of influence. They're seeing you, even if you're not in a leadership position, it's like, okay, well, he's kind of bagging it. So I'm going to bag it. Right. And I think you're hundred percent right. It's not that they're born being amazingly technically and tactically proficient. They have the discipline and the, uh, you know, the, the motivation and work ethic to remain, uh, they don't, they don't rest on, I was really good at this a year ago. Um, I'm, I'm going to constantly make sure that I'm the best at this. Totally. Totally. I always say am, amateurs practice until they get it right. Pro- professionals practice until they can't get it wrong. Mm-hmm. That's what those types of teammates do. How do you think, how do you think your teammates would describe you back in like, you know, 2010 or so? Yeah. I mean, I, I would hope that they would say I was technically and tactically proficient. <laughs> I felt like I was trying to be, but it, you know, we all make mistakes too. Right. So I certainly uh, don't sit here on, a, on any podcast and say like, Oh, I was the best green beret ever. Right. Like I've made more than my fair share of mistakes and continue to do so. Right. Like the one thing that I always try to try to remind myself is that I never want to look back at myself two years ago and be ha- happy with where I was. Uh, I always look back two years ago, like, man, I didn't know anything, man. I've learned so much since then. Right. Because if you continuously have that growth mindset, you shouldn't be stagnant, uh, two years from, you know, looking back at today. Right. And so I hope, uh, you know, what I would hope for, uh, my teammates is that I gave a, I gave a shit, frankly, like there, that, that to me can't be overstated. Like the difference in the it factor of someone who wants to be there and is trying their hardest is huge. Right. And so as we look at the difference, you know, we talked about professional versus amateur. One of the things that the best teammates always did was they showed up every day wanting to get after it, right. Their heart was in it. They were after it and they wanted to be the best at it. Right. And so I think, uh, I think there were times where I, uh, uh, you know, was, was in that mode and I would hope that my teammates, uh, you know, I, I still have a lot of good relationships with my old teammates. So I hope that that means that they, uh, they felt that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think my teammates would say the guy wanted it. He was after it. He was trying his best. Uh, he, he talked a lot, uh, but uh, <laughs> he, he wouldn't shut up sometimes. Uh, but he was trying to make sure uh, we were doing the right thing. And that, uh, you know, at that point in 2010 or so, I was like an E7, kind of like the a senior dude on a team, but not in a leadership position. And uh, I was always a guy who was trying to volunteer to do more. And so that's what I hope they would remember. Yeah. 
That's awesome. Um, you, you, I, you lit up when you started talking about the human performance stuff that you were doing is, is, is that like the accomplishment? If you look back at your service career that you're most proud of, or, or does something else jump out at you? Man, there's a lot of things. Like I always try not to, you know, I, I think pride comes before a fall. So I'm always trying to, you know, make sure that I'm not like, Oh man, I hang my hat on this one thing, right? Um, you know, uh, to me, everything is a stepping stone, but there's a lot of things that I'm proud of that like our teams did together, right? Uh, individually, I try not to rest on those things as much. Like, I, I guess what pops in my mind is, uh, you know, in that advanced, uh, room clearing school that I talked about earlier, I talked about how I was a guy straight off the street. Right. Um, uh, it was an 18 x-ray is what it's called. Guys like Sean Hurd, they went and did time in the Ranger Regiment and in the regular army and then came to special forces. I was a guy who came straight off the street. Right. And so this particular course is one of the most uh, difficult to pass uh, courses that we have in special forces. And I was lucky enough to uh, be the honor grad of that course. And I was the first 18 x-ray to be the honor grad of that course. Right. And so anytime you're the first of something that's like uh, kind of cool, right? So it always sticks in my mind. I always think about that. I don't talk about it a lot because again, I'd rather talk about the things that like we did as a team. Uh, and, and in those cases, the things I'm proudest about are, um, you know, being able to accomplish really difficult missions, bring everybody home and take care of each other to this day, right? Like my first team, 782, I still talk to those dudes. We did three combat tours together. They did more than that. I, I was on it for three years uh, and, or I was on it for four years, did three combat tours and we still talk to each other, right? And I'm proudest of things like that. And honestly, uh, as, uh, as non-professional as this is, uh, one of the things I'm proudest of is that I've been married for almost 17 years in this life. Right. And that I love my wife and she loves me and we're still together and we got little kids and I'm a dad. Uh, you know, it's not the professional answer necessarily, but man, this, this life, uh, is constantly trying to rip that apart. And I'm proud that I made it to, you know, the first of many finish lines, uh, being the end of the 20 years in the army, uh, still with her by my side and us still liking each other and loving each other. Uh, I'm really proud of that. You know, that, I mean, that's something to be proud of, man, especially with all the combat tours. Like, you know, that yeah. that's really hard on families. I don't think people really appreciate that. I, I actually, so I, I got some new yeah. hardware th there this weekend, but congrats, uh, man. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. That's yeah. awesome, dude. So I'm getting I'm getting used to the wife label instead of the fiance yeah. label. But yeah, you can I just mean, call her your ex girlfriend. You know, she is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she would like that one. <laughs> uh, no, it's great, uh, man. Uh, it's it it, like I said, it's it's amazing. I, I put it up there. You know, when when you have a good marriage and, and you're in it together. I put it up there just as highly as my green beret or anything else. Like, there's nothing more foundationally. Like I can do the things that I do every day because I have foundationally, I have her on my side. I have her, uh, you know, as, as, uh, you know, as a partner and it's amazing, yep. man. I, I hope, I hope in 17 years you feel the exact same way, man. Cause it's, it's too. huge for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and of course the, the most important role of dad too, that's, oh, man. that's very yeah. rewarding, right? A hundred percent. Um, now for, for, like a, a big part of our audience are athletes and, and business leaders. And I, I'd love to get your take on like, for those of us who have never served, why do you think the transition from military life to, to civilian life can be, can be pretty tough on our, on our veterans? 
Yeah, hundred percent, man. I, I, you know, I have a unique perspective a little bit of this because not only having gone through my own, um, you know, transition, I'm also really active in several nonprofits uh, that that deal with it, and also on that last job where I was kind of heading the human performance thing, we had some play in the transition space. So it was something professionally that I had to really dig into even before I started doing my own, um, you know, transition. But you know, what makes it difficult to me is that it doesn't matter if you get out after four years or 34 years, anytime you have something that is an all-consuming fire, that is your passion, you're, you're with all your best friends, you have, like, I can, I can go home to my wife at, at any of those days and be like, honey, I got to do this because it's for the flag. It's for the U.S. It's for, like, it's for the boys, all these things. And so you have this thing that you can use and, and it uses you and it's an all-consuming fire. It's your passion. It's and it becomes your identity, right? And and no matter how much we try to tell each other, like, don't let that become your only identity. It's going to be part of your identity, but it's going like the uniform is going to come off. It's the same as professional athletes. Like I was, I was lucky to do a a, a course at Tuck's School of Business through Dartmouth called Next Step, which is a similar kind of, um, it, it's a similar grouping to what shift does, right? It was pro athletes, Olympic athletes, collegiate athletes, and then a lot of military folks. And uh, they, you know, you guys have the same challenges, right? It's like, at some point, like I'm a hockey, you know, for you, I'm a, I'm a hockey player. Like I do this, that's part of my identity. And then all of a sudden you're not. And it's like, okay, well, what's the rest of my identity? And that's for us, one of the things that's toughest, you know, even if you see it coming, uh, it's tough, right? Because now you are not doing the thing that you felt was your life's work. That was your calling. Uh, so that's one thing that's difficult. The other thing is difficult. If you've done a long time in the military, um, you you don't really know what to even start talking about when you start having the cups of coffee with people and you're you're trying to do the right thing and you've heard all of this stuff from people that are going through it and and you sit down and you uh, you know what the way I like to put it is like it's not just that you don't know what chess piece you want to be, you don't know what chess pieces there are, you don't know what the board looks like. You don't know what the moves are. You have no idea, right? You you maybe have seen a flash picture through other people's experience, but you have really no idea uh, even like what industry or what role or anything that you are even interested in, right? Half of it is having cups of coffee and realizing, well, I don't want to do that, right? And like scratching that off. And, and you have to tell people in, during transition, like that's just as that's just as positive as you actually finding it is like at least realizing like that sounds terrible before you get into it has saved you time and effort and all these things. Right. And so it, it, it's just a difficult thing uh, again. And there's, there's tactical kind of differences. Like we do profit and loss completely different in the military. And so one of my goals is through transition is like, I want to go somewhere that I can have a mentor and I can learn profit and loss like the right way the the business way because i know that what we do is not what i'm going to do uh on the outside right uh you know we have all of this money that you don't spend until you know the last two months and then you have to spend <laughs> all of it otherwise you don't get that same budget the next time right and so it's a complete backwards way of looking at it so that's one of like the tactical differences and obviously there's some leadership differences um but one of the cool things about special operations is it's far more about solving problems and 
um, you know, for special forces specifically, we don't really get like, here's your mission and here's exactly what we want you to do. We get like, here's a wicked problem. If we knew how to fix it, we wouldn't need special forces there. We need you to go figure it out. Right. And so being in that mold, I think helps us now as we jump into the civilian world. Yeah, the, the wording might be different. The verbiage, the vernacular might be a little different. Some of the things look a little different. I might have to speak a little bit differently in how I lead, but solving problems that I've, you know, have never encountered before is something I've done for my entire career. Right. And so it is challenging. But once you start to make those kind of shifts, your more of your experience does translate than doesn't. It just might look a little different sometimes. And it, and it, it takes a little while to do. Yeah. The, the, the identity thing is so it's so real, man. Like I, I always, the analogy I use, it, it is really like losing a loved one, like somebody mm -hmm. that you see every single day. That's a huge part of your life. And then one day you wake up and they're gone. Yeah. And it's the grief is, is very similar. Um, it's one of the main reasons that we have such a suicide issue in veterans is that you go from, this is my thing. This is my calling. These are all my best friends, all these things. And all of a sudden it's like, you just drop off a cliff. And a lot of, a lot of folks, it becomes, they don't see the hope on the other side of it. And it's like, you literally just tore their identity out and they're left sitting there. Right. And so it's a huge part, man. It's, uh, it's, even if you see it coming, like uh, I felt it for sure. Right. I feel like as somebody who's, you know, didn't serve, I come from a military family. Like I, I have a real, um, like gratefulness for those that go and serve. And I think there are a lot of people in business leadership like me and, and they don't know like where to start when it, when it comes to like trying to help make yeah. this transition easier or smoother. Any advice for like some of the sales leaders and business leaders that are listening to this about how they can try to help make that transition smoother for our veterans? Yeah, hundred percent. I, I think it's a great question. And it's something that we should probably try to talk more about. We talk so much about the individual who's transitioning and we don't talk as much to like, Hey, you, you want to help. Here's a way, right? And, and my, my number one suggestion is to get aligned with some of the organizations that do this all the time, right? Like you don't have to blaze a new trail as a CEO or, uh, you know, CMO or whoever that that wants to bring some of this talent in you don't have to start from scratch right there's places like shift group there's places like the honor foundation that is like a four-month cohort that we go through that you can be aligned as either a mentor you can be aligned as like hey i just want to be sort of a feet i want to use thf as a feeder organization for job opportunities and talent acquisition um as i mentioned earlier tuck next step is one of those things that you can kind of you may not get tapped into the actual program itself but you can look for people who've been through some of these things and they are not starting from scratch either, right? And so that's my first suggestion is to get aligned with some of these different organizations. You will find that through from being mentors to them um, that, that you'll learn all the things that you need to learn as far as like how to then um, uh, help transition. But that would be the second thing is like just willingness, right? Like if, you, if you're asking yourself this question, then you've already made the first step. And really just taking that, you know, the opportunity, like, honestly, if right now, you know, you and I've both got LinkedIn and we've got a decent, you know, you got more followers than I do. But if you put out right now, hey, I have a, I have a business leader who's open to just having conversations. Here's a Calendly link. It would fill up like that, right? Like people, people are looking for your knowledge as a business leader 
and your willingness to give, you know, uh, 30, 30 minutes every week or whatever it is, even if it's to one individual you want to mentor, or if you want to spread that out to a bunch of different folks, um, you know, just be aware that some people are in different places where they don't know the right questions to ask yet, but your willingness to just sit down with somebody and, and try to have a conversation and try to help them out is hugely beneficial, um, you know, from our side, but also, you know, I've talked to a lot of business leaders who are like, man, that's one of my favorite parts of my week, right? As I get to talk to somebody, even if they don't join my organization, the people I get to meet and the people, you know, hear their stories is kind of like this podcast, right? It's like, holy cow. It's like, that's why I do a podcast, right? I like talking to people and like hearing these amazing stories and being like, wow, I wouldn't have gotten a chance to like hear this person. Uh, if we wouldn't have done this. Right. And so those are the two kind of main things I would say, if you're a business leader listening is get aligned with an organization and then just willingness, put it out there like, Hey, if anybody's going through this and wants uh, to chat, you know, I've got whatever Thursday afternoon at one o'clock every week open to be signed up for. Right. Yeah. And you, you use that like cup of coffee language. I know that mm -hmm. that's from the honor foundation and, and right. what they do and we're involved with them. And, and it's like, I don't think like some of these executives realize how life-changing a 30 minute conversation could be yeah. for some of these folks that are transitioning like you you know we see it all the time where we we open a lot of folks eyes to the idea of a sales career because they have these preconceived notions yeah. and then they hear from someone like me or sean about like what it's given us and they're like oh that's not what i thought yeah. sales was so and that can that can apply to any type of profession so having that those conversations are really meaningful um now with your own transition matt did you know coming out, you were going to start a sales career when you finished? Were there other paths that you explored? Like talk a little bit about your transition. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I will say transition to me is not an open and shut finish thing, right? Like yeah. I'm only actually today, actually, as we're recording this today is my first official day as a civilian, right? Like I've been working for nine wow. months and yesterday was actually the day that I went down and switched ID cards to a retired ID um, because I had a six month internship. Well, which is amazing. Like the, the military, um, gives you an opportunity under the right circumstances to go work somewhere else for six months to help that transition. And then I had a whole bunch of safe PTO for the last like three months. Right. So I've been, I've been a civilian, uh, unofficially for like nine months and now I'm actually one. Right. And so to me, the other thing that I always talk to transitioning vets about is like, it's not a single transition. You're going to have multiple transitions throughout your career and throughout your life. And so you're always going to need to, maintain some of the same things that you did on that first jump out, which is finding community, building a network, l constantly learning uh, so that you know what you might want to do in, on the next jump. Uh, but to answer your question, I did not come out and say, hey, I'm going to target sales, right? Um, I I was open to it, which was a lot different than a lot of veterans. Um, you know, a couple of those cups of coffee mentorship things that I did, I said like, Hey, you know, I've always had kind of the gift of gab. I've always looked at life in a sales sort of way. You know, it's my belief that we're all in sales, uh, all the time, right? Like you're either selling yourself, you're selling an idea, you're selling, um, your business, you're selling your value prop. There's all these different things, whether it's nonprofit, no matter what. We're all selling. Like if you're going to a bar and you're looking for a girl, you're selling yourself, right? You're selling the value prop that, hey, I'm the right person you should pick, right? It's all sales, right? It's just um, people think sales and they think like, you know, the sleazy used car salesman who's getting me into something that I shouldn't buy and all those things. And what I talk to new sales folks about is like, there's a difference in B2B sales. I'm not asking them to pull out their wallet and give me, you know, grandma's bread money 
It's like, no, they are already, they need this. Like this, they are already buying this likely, or it's a new solution for a problem they already have. And, you know, that to me is something that a lot of people just, they haven't made that jump in their mind and they haven't thought through it yet. But most folks, after you, after a little bit of conversation, they realize like, oh yeah, it totally makes sense. Right. And so for me, I wasn't like, I was open to it, but I wasn't like, I, you know, I'm going to go, you know, Sean was like, I'm going to go find a, a sales job. Right. I actually joined here and I wasn't supposed to be, uh, in charge of sales. I was actually going to be sort of the, um, you know, the right hand guy kind of in between to just sort of solve problems, right? And kind of learn. It was just a, a great mentor here is the CEO who's like, hey, I'm just going to bring you in. I believe in bringing good talent in and I, I want you to learn the business and all that stuff. Well, in between the time that I accepted the position and actually started here, the VP of sales left for another organization, right? So I started here for the first couple of months and there was kind of just this hole where nobody, you know, there wasn't alignment in a lot of cases. And, and so I finally went to the boss and I said, hey, listen, I'm not, I, I don't have any yeah, you know, I'm not technically and tactically proficient at this yet, <laughs> but I, I will fill it in in an interim as a leader just so that people can, you know, and so uh, that's how I sort of got into it, right? It's like, okay, I, I've got sales and marketing under me. Uh, what helped me was that, again, I, I'd always had this sort of life is sales mindset, but also, uh, you know, I'm not afraid to say what, you know, I don't know what I don't know. Right. And so I think what a lot of people, they do this fake it till you make it thing. And I'm like, I don't fake it. And then I try to learn it. Right. So I come in like, it's going to take you a lot longer to learn if you pretend you know it. Right. But to me, I was like, Hey, you guys know my background. I didn't come from some sales background, all this, you know, every meeting I have with my team is like, Hey, listen, if you guys know this already because of your, uh, you know, because of your knowledge, because of your experience, I want to learn it. But if we don't know it, let's figure it out together, right? And so I'm not going to come in and pretend that I know something I don't know, right? And so that's why I, I always, uh, some people say fake it till you make it and, and they do it in the right way. But I'm always really kind of like, I wish you wouldn't. I wish you would just come in and be honest and and don't tell me, oh, I got it, Matt. If you don't have it, like we can figure it out together. Uh, you don't have to pretend, right? And so I would rather not fake it and then learn it and then you actually make it. Right. Uh, and so that's kind of, that's where my, and, and to me, I don't know that sales is going to be it forever, but I do know I'm going to, no matter what job I'm in, I'm selling, like I'm selling off duty. I'm selling on duty. Like it, life is sales, right? It just is what it is. Right. I love it. I love, there's two nuggets that like jumped out at me there. One is like, you're constantly transitioning and approaching every transition with a beginner's mindset is the difference between success and failure. I think, right? Like you got to go, mm -hmm open-minded, ready to learn. And it doesn't matter if you're going from military to, to civilian or you're going from like uh, an individual contributor to a leadership role. Like 100%, you've got to yeah. approach that transition with a, with a beginner's mindset. And then the other thing, man, like you just hit a nerve on everybody sells. <clears throat> I'm like getting really big on this now because mm -hmm. when you actually like take a step back, you think about any career, doctor, lawyer, teacher, doesn't matter. Think about the amount of time you, you're spending convincing people to do something, yeah. motivating people to do something. Building and, trust. And, that's yeah, sales building, too. Building right? trust, educating. Like that is what sales is. And I think we're all in the business of moving people to take some sort of action. Salespeople, the action is sign, sign the purchase order. But, <laughs> Preferably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hopefully. Uh, but like the, the, the collaboration, communication, building a relationship and trust over time everybody's doing that in all their jobs. Yep. Um, so that's, I mean, you're, you're fortunate to have that mindset. 
we have to educate a lot of people on that. And, and here's the reality. I think Matt, not everybody is cut out for sales, right? Like sure. that's just, yeah. that's just the fact when if a Greenberg, now that you've done it and you've been in this, the, the sales role for a little while, if a Green Beret came to you and was like, yeah, I think I might do sales, what, what kind of questions do you think you would ask them to help them decide if sales is actually a good fit for them? Yeah. I mean, obviously we know one of the number ones is like, how do you deal with rejection? Like, do you take that incredibly personally? Because right? if you are going to get like, just if you're going to go red every time somebody <laughs> tells you to F off and slams the phone down, this is probably not the move, right? Because like you're still, you're going to get that, right? And you just got to understand that like you've been on the other side of those calls and sometimes, you know, uh, you have, uh, you know, sometimes said something or, or acted that way because of your own internal, you know, what was going on in your day, right? Um, the other thing that I, I always like, I, I, I think talkers are good salespeople, right? And so if you're really hesitant to ever engage somebody and you like, most people don't know JR, like I still, I still kind of consider myself introverted, like because of how you recharge, like I don't recharge by going out with people, right? I recharge by like, after I do podcasts and whatever else, I'm like, okay, everybody leave me alone for a little while. And, See? but I know how to turn it on. Right. And I know how to engage and I know what, what, needs to be done to communicate. Right. And so, um, one of the questions I always ask is like, talk to me about how you communicate and how you feel about talking to people you've never talked to. Right. And so if that is a huge hurdle, it doesn't mean you can't do sales, but like I have a, a young BDR with me right now, uh, who works for me, who she's never done sales. She's never done any of that stuff. And she's, she was having trouble, uh, like learn how to, how do I speak to new people? And I was like, Hey, there's this thing called Toastmasters. Like I never did it, but I know what it is and I want you to go. And, and so I was actually just talking to her earlier today and, uh, she went yesterday morning. I was like, how was it? And she's like, I hated it. I never want to go back, whatever. And I said, then you're right where you need to be. Right. Because if, if it was great, you don't need it. Right. Like a tree grows wild and unruly if it's not pruned. Right. Deliberate discomfort and having some of that pruning is how we actually end up being successful. Right. And so throughout my career, it was always the things that like, oh, I hate doing this, but I'm getting better at it that I really needed. Right. And for me, like speaking, public speaking was one of those things where I was like, I want to get better at this. And I went out and did a bunch of reps at little, mom and pop places and JROTCs and all these different things. And it was uncomfortable and that's what I needed. Right. And so I told her, I was like, anytime you feel that feeling, I'm not telling you to go out and hurt yourself and whatever else, but if you feel discomfort and it's because you're not good at something, I told her, you know, next year you're going to look back and be like, man, I'm so much better than I was last year. But if you quit and you never go back to it next year, you're going to look back and be like, man, I'm just as terrible at this as I was last year. Which do you want to be? Right. Like that's, that's the main thing. And so when I talk to new people about whether they want to do sales, it's, it's rejection. It's how do you, how do you communicate and really like talk to me about how you look at value and how you look at relationships in selling. Right. Like, because if you are the person, like all of us know authenticity, right? So JR, if you call me and I can tell you are just trying to find a way to get a PO and never, you know, and, and move on, I'm going to be a lot more hesitant. But if I feel like, like, okay, hey, you actually do, you have explained to me why what you do will help me in a problem and that will continue to be, a, you know, a solution going forward, I'm much more willing to have that conversation, right? And so those are some of the conversations that I have just to kind of fill people out, like, 
it, you don't have to actually know the value prop and all that stuff initially, but you have to kind of have a framework understanding of like, I'm looking for problems that people have and trying to figure out if our solution works for it, as opposed to trying to force um, whatever. Like I would rather, I would rather our salespeople here realize early that this is not a good fit and move on to somebody who might be a good fit than try to force, you know, two, you know, two weeks of work into something that we should have known initially was just, it's not a good fit. Right. So good. I love deliberate discomfort, man. That's, that's where it is. The, the it analogy is. I, I, me and my brothers, my dad was a hockey coach. So he used to, he used to request that we shot pucks every day and he would come, he would come home every night and he'd say, how many pucks did you shoot? And I tell him, you know, I shot 400 pucks and he would always ask me how many backhands did you take? Cause I was horrible at backhands. Yeah. <laughs> and I would, I could sit in the driveway and take 500 slap shots as my best shot. I felt good being good at it. Yep. And he was kind of instilling in me, like you don't get better by working on your strengths, dude. You got to get yep. better by working on your weaknesses. I love that deliberate discomfort. And I'll just say, I didn't coin that term. There's a book written by Jason Van Camp, who's also a Green Beret called Deliberate Discomfort. And he put a name to it better than anybody else I had ever. So I, yep. I, uh, you know, Jason, if you're listening to this, sorry, I'm using your word, but to me, it sums it up so well, right? Like so that, good. that term if you've done it before, if you've been, if you've been successful and you've had to go through those, as soon as you hear that term, you're like that. Yep. That's it. Right. 100%. It's like, that's, that's what we need. Right. Now, um, we talk a lot about, you know, we get, we get, uh, veterans come through the program and then they usually get a, a bunch of at bats at a bunch of different companies. Um, mm -hmm. how do you think like a, a veteran should think about, um, approaching the company selection and, and, and listen, it's not, the nineties anymore. You don't go work at a company for 25 years usually. Yeah. Uh, but that first, that first company is pretty important from a foundational perspective. What, 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 what would you be advice be on, in terms of what they should be looking for in that first company? I will start by saying it is so hard, right? Because as I said earlier, like it's different if you've worked in other, you know, sort of business environments and now you are maybe making a jump to sales or whatever. But if you're an athlete or you're military or whatever, and you you haven't been in that environment for so long, whether it's four years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever, it's tough because everything looks good from the outside, right? Like very few people do you have like massive red flags during either the interview process or, you know, if they're courting you or whatever, right? Like everybody puts their best foot forward, right? And so it's always tough to really understand but you know I, I think i think core values is a huge thing right like understanding like is this you know i i i have to be able to trust my boss right yep. i have worked i've had bosses in the past in the military that i didn't trust and it's a death nail to me right like i will i will do all kinds of things if i trust that you're a trustworthy person and we're doing this and we're, we're on board and we're doing it for the right reasons and all those things. And so that's one of the barometers for me and it's subjective, right? Like that's not something that you objectively have a checklist and you can say yes or no, that's a feeling, right? And so one of the things that I think is tough during an interview process is have you actually met the person that you're actually going to work for? Right. Because you can read the CEO's like vision. You can look at whatever the order, you know, quarterly earning statements and all that stuff. But your actual boss and like the people that you're actually interacting with are so much more important. If it's a big company, 
you're probably not going to talk to that CEO all that often. And he might, or she might have a great public presence, but that guy or gal that you actually work for, those are the people that you really got to make sure, like, can I jive with these people? Right. And so the other thing I would say is like, especially if you're going into sales, you don't have to love the product. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to feel like you invented it, but you also can't loathe it. Right. Like it can't be something where you just feel like every day I'm picking up a sack of, you know, whatever, dirty socks and I'm trying to sell them door to door. Right. Like that's never going to be a good thing. Right. And so you don't have to love it. It doesn't have to be your defining passion, but you can't wake up every day and be like, I'm trying to convince other people to buy something that I hate. That's just not going to be a good fit. Right. And so those are tactically to me you know, culture and all those things, I will say that micro culture is more important than macro culture, right? You can have the greatest, you know, you could go work at Apple or whoever, this amazing macro culture. But if your individual office is terrible, it's the same with SOCOM or any big place, right? Uh, SOCOM as a whole, amazing culture. There's pockets in there across 70,000 people across the world that there's a bad micro culture, right? And so for us, it manifests you go through that two years to become a Green Beret. And to your point, that first organization is huge. For us, that first team you get to is the most important thing you'll do in your entire career because you want to assimilate, assimilate to, well, I guess this is what Green Berets do. And so if you go to a good team, you will have a great career. Not, well, I mean, it's not one plus one equals two, but you have a much higher probability of having a really solid career. And I know superstars, amazingly talented people who went through the qualification course with me, who their first team was a bad team and they were out in four years or something happened. And, and, and it is incredibly important that when you get there, if it's not good, go somewhere else, right? If it is good, stay, learn and print. And like you said, it doesn't have to be for 20 years. It could be for, it could be for nine months. It could be for 18 months. It could be for 24 months, whatever it is, you know, I would say don't jump immediately just be, you know, because suddenly you can, like you, we're in the military and you can't jump forever. Uh, again, back to the deliberate discomfort thing, like there are, it's going to, it's going to be tough. You're going to have to learn things. So I'm not saying run away, but you know, if you, if you get in and you, you know, your microculture is terrible, you hate your boss and you don't like what you're selling, I would look elsewhere. Right. But hopefully you did your vetting where you don't end up in that position to begin with. Right. By the way, that's literally the exact advice I give everybody. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, there like, you go. It's we're, not, we're aligned. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's not like we, we get kids that get wrapped around the axle on like this base salary is 5K more, this yeah. this benefit, this is hybrid, this is fully in the – I'm like, guys, you're, you're overthinking it, right? You, yeah. need to, you need to go and focus on the people you're about to spend the most time with because those, they're going to build the foundation for you. And then they're going to gonna teach point, you and you're going to yeah. make money, right? Totally, and then totally. You're going to be fine. And, yeah. and that $5,000 will seem like nothing uh, yeah. if it's a good culture. And you'll probably make 20 times that uh, yeah. if it's a good culture and you like what you're selling or you at least respect why it's a good thing to be sold. Um, yeah. Well, th- that, that was going to be the second thing I dig yeah. into. Like on the leadership side, someone you trust, ideally someone you admire, like somebody mm-hmm. that you look up to and want to be like someday. And then- on the product side, right? Like, I, you know, I, I've been selling software for 16 years. I started, I came out of school, never owned a computer before, <laughs> sociology major, minor in art history and sign language. Like, <laughs> but for me, the way I get excited about a product or, or a solution is I, as I get to know the problem. And, and if mm-hmm. you do your proper research and, and you prepare 
for these conversations with companies and you really understand the problem that they solve and how they solve it uniquely, you can you can get excited about some weird shit that you didn't think you were going to get excited about. Like I, my first technology I sold was backup and virtualization. I never never was passionate about either thing, but when I understood the, those two problems and how important they were in business, you bet. And and we sold a solution that was really unique in the space. I got pretty passionate about it when I got good at it. Right, like so, you know, don't get too wrapped around that axle about loving what you sell. But sometimes you got to force that love a little bit by understanding it, really, you know? No, that's a great point. 100%. I agree. Yeah. 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 Um, we spend a lot of time with our veterans in our program, like teaching them how to craft their story about their time in the military, right? Sean, Sean always tells his story about how he interviewed with like 40 companies. Yeah. And the most common objection he got was like, well, you don't know how to use a CRM. <laughs> <laughs> Sean's a you know E nine, yeah. you know Sergeant Major, Fifth Special Forces, twenty two year yeah. beret, and I. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I started the company because I'm like you know you got this twenty four year old HR lady who's like checking a box, and it's just it's. But if you do get good at telling your story, it's a, it's a game changer. How yeah. did you how do you how did you tell your story to land your gig at Trifecta? Yeah, through, you know, we mentioned the Honor Foundation earlier and some of these things like to me, the value of those is doing all the self-reflection and figuring out your value prop, your story and and putting it into story language. Like uh, one of the reasons that I think podcasting is so um, impactful is that when you tell somebody a story, it emotionally connects way more than facts and figures. Like if you can have facts and figures and then back them up with a story, you know, grand slam, right? Um, for me, my story was, you know, uh, it, it's wrapped around what made me, what set me apart from my peers when I was in special forces was when there was a new initiative or a, a new uh, change that needed to happen or somebody needed to go somewhere and represent the organization and figure out what we were going to do. And we needed to completely trust that person to be there either solo on a very small team. I was the guy who was sent, right? I was the guy who was always trying to improve what we were doing. Sometimes I failed. Sometimes I had, I sold an idea and it didn't work, but I was always trying to figure out how can we get better at what we're doing? I hate the, we've always done it this way. Um, it, it's like, antithetical to everything I believe, right? Now, if we've always done it this way and it's the best way to do it and we're continuing to see success, great. We can solve other problems. But if we're just saying, let's keep it that way because we don't want to try to figure out how to do it better, then I just can't, I can't do it, right? And so when I tell my story, it's like, hey, you know, when there was, um, you know, one of my favorite stories is we were doing, uh, we used to do um, a lot of protection support for the secret service when either the president or the vice president would go different places. Right. Um, and unfortunately there was an international incident in Cartagena, uh, probably about 10 years ago now, or a little bit longer ago, that was a huge deal. Like secret service, uh, was in the news. And unfortunately there were a couple of green berets from my company. I was in a different hotel at the time and not doing what they were doing. But anyway, um, the, unfortunately, the Secret Service guys got in trouble and they went and anybody who had checked anyone into the hotel got in trouble. And we had a couple of Green Berets who had checked somebody, you know, they didn't, they didn't do what the other people had done, but unfortunately they got caught in the, in the crossfire. Right. And as a result, we no longer did those missions for several years. Like it was like, Hey, everybody go to your corner. And like, uh, you know, there's a huge international incident and all this stuff. Well, 
a few years passed and we got a reach out from the secret service like hey you know president's going down um to uh panama for a, a big summit and we would like to re-engage this or you know kind of relationship and really like we didn't have any more like we had we had completely flushed that mission like we didn't have any plans for it we didn't have any sop standard operating procedures or anything and we didn't have any relationships and there was a ton of stuff going on right we had all these different missions going on and my bosses at the time this would have been like a team sergeant or team leader kind of level if not the commander himself going down and reestablishing this relationship but there's a ton of different things going on and they kind of looked around and they're like we need someone to go down there who we trust who will figure it out who will who will tell us what we need to bring and they called me in the office i was an e7 at the time i wasn't in a leadership position and they said hey matt we're gonna send you down there solo two weeks uh, ahead of the thing we want you to link up with the secret service figure out what we need to do Call us back, send us, you know, make the plan, basically figure out exactly who we need to bring, what equipment we need to bring, generate this entire thing, and then lead it when we go down there, right? And again, I wasn't in that positional authority to do that, but they trusted me, right? And so I got to go down there and, uh, you know, special forces is one of those things that uh, we stay regionally aligned because we learn the language, we learn the culture, and you create relationships in places from the time you go down when you're young in your career to when you've moved up. So just so happens I go down, I link up with the Secret Service, we sit in the embassy and we're uh, this huge thing, President Obama's coming down for this massive summit, all these things, and my Secret Service counterpart, who's still a friend of mine to this day, is sitting there and he's like, man, I got to tell you, I don't speak any Spanish. I'm a little Irish dude. I have no idea who is in charge of the things from the other host nation. Like, he didn't know what I did. He's like, I, I hear you're a guy who might get help. And I'm like, I, I got you, dude. And we're sitting in the embassy and two Panamanian special operators walk in and introduce themselves to the room as the guys in charge of the unit that's going to support. I knew one of them personally. And I had, I had worked with him multiple times and I looked over at Brian, the guy from secret service. And I said, Hey Ben, I got you. And he's like, I don't know what you mean. I was like, don't worry about it. I got you. <laughs> so after the whole mission goes on, like every, this whole brief in the embassy, all the white house stuff shirts and everybody's going on, everything's going on. He's like, he has this checklist of all the things he needs to figure out over the next two weeks. We go meet this Panamanian guy. I get introduced to the other guy. I take Brian's checklist and I start rapping in Spanish with this dude. Hey, man. We spend about 20 minutes. We're laughing, joking, whatever. I write all the answers down. I hand them back to Brian. I'm like, here you go. And he's like, we were supposed to do that in 20, 20, you know, two weeks. I said, yeah, yeah, we're good. I was like, you, you want to go get some food? And he's like, who are you? I was like, that's what we do. We're special forces. We, we integrate with the, you know, and he's like, but other ones of you are going to come, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've already got it in my mind. We need about, we need about three teams worth of guys. And we're going to, this is how we're going to rate, whatever. He's like, can you come to my secret service meeting this afternoon? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And so I got up in their secret service meeting. I was like, whiteboard this is what we're going to do, blah, 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 blah. And they were like, where are you from? And I was like, oh, I'm from seven special forces group, blah, blah, blah. And literally after that trip, all of that was back on to this day. V POTUS, POTUS, anybody goes anywhere across the world, SF still in there and doing all these things because the value prop was immediately apparent all the way up to the C to the special agent in charge. And I called back to our hire and I was like, hey, here's what we need, blah, 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 sent this big PowerPoint, whatever, came down, executed the mission. I actually got to help President Obama walk across the Panama Canal and go into this thing. I had seals in a boat in the Panama Canal in case he fell off this little gangplank. It was a huge thing, right? And it was one SF guy who went down there and figured it out 
And that's the value prop that we bring, right? It's like, we didn't know what the answer was. We knew there was a problem. We need somebody to go down there that we trust that can make it happen. And that was, uh, that was me at the time, but that's any special forces guy that is worth their salt could have done the exact same thing. Right. And so when you think about bringing talent onto your organization, you want somebody that you can trust and who will figure out problems, who will make your organization look better than you looked before they got there. And that will create lasting products and procedures that will be enduring, right? Like that mission set and how we laid that out is still the standard operating procedure today, right? And so that was 2012, I think. So that's what you want, right? If you're going to hire somebody, that's what you want. And so those are the stories I tell. And I'm like, hey, it's not just me. It's you know, Sean Hurd, it's any, any SF guy who's, who's solid. Like we got our share of, uh, you know, bad apples here and there too. But if you get a good one, that's what they'll provide. Right. So good. That's, I mean, and, and you kind of covered like, you know, that, that <laughs> skill that makes you elite too. Right. Like that's, that's awesome. Um, listen, this is, this is our, we asked this final question to everybody, uh, Matt. Um, yeah. and it comes from my background, my, My dad used to tell us when we were little, a lot of people play hockey, but there aren't a lot of hockey players. And he was getting this idea in our head about this idea of being a a pro, a professional, right? Um, So I'd love to get your take. If I were to ask you, what what does being a pro in sales, what does that mean to you? To me, it goes back a little bit to what we talked about earlier, is understanding the problem that you solve better than anyone else and being able to identify people with that problem and explain to them why you can solve it better than anyone else. Right. And that is, that is elite sales. That is a pro, right. Is the more experience you have, that process gets smoother and smoother and more efficient to where you spot and assess the right people who are your, you know, your ideal clients. You go and talk to them and figure out and confirm like, is the problem that I think you have, is it there? And if it's not, you cut quickly and you don't waste your time. And if it is, you're very good at explaining to them why the thing that your company does solves that problem better than anyone else at a, you know, whether it's value, whether it's price, whether it's speed, whether it's quality, whether it's all of the above, that's a pro, right? Is somebody who can see it, who can explain it and who can build that relationship so that it's an enduring thing and not just something where it's like, thanks for the money. I'll see you next time. It's like, Hey, you know, if somebody, if somebody, a pro sales guy or gal completes that, you know, you're willing to call that person again because they care and they took the time to like, know. and that that's a relationship sale and not a, you know, one call close and I'm out to something else. Right. And that's a pro to me. Love it. So good, Matt, Matt, thank you so much for giving us your time today, man. Yeah, this was, great. We're, we're going to give a shout out to your, to the podcast in the intro. Um, and, and you guys can all find Matt on wherever you find your podcast on prep for impact, Matt, thank you so much for giving us the time, buddy. No, JR. Thanks, man. And, and especially come check out Sean Hurd's episode. Uh, yes. phenomenal. He talks shift group a little bit and, uh, he's a great guy. He's in sales and obviously working with shift as well. And, uh, JR, appreciate the time, man. I really appreciate what you guys are doing. I think it's a great mission and I'm happy. Uh, I'm happy you're doing it. I'm happy to support it. Thank you. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io.